The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who governs all things in heaven and on earth, mercifully hear the prayers of your people and grant us your peace through all our days. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, a couple of items of business from last week. Uh, one is that this week on Tuesday, January 22nd, is the Indiana March for Life. If you've been paying attention, if you're a, a Facebooker uh, or you follow any of the LCMS blog, you would have noticed that on Thursday of this past week was the uh, National um, uh, March or Walk for Life. I forget the title they have for it. Uh, and President Harrison was out there. We actually had supper with him Monday night when I got up into Fort Wayne, and, um, and uh, he sat by Pastor Grady, by the way. Um, so Pastor Grady is his new favorite pastor in the Missouri Synod. Is that correct? Yeah, that's true, okay. And uh, <laughs> so he was around. We have been at symposia. I've been at symposia all week which is a five-day conference, if you will. It's actually a four-day uh, conference, series of lectures that various professors and guest uh, professors come in and present at Concordia Theological Seminary. Uh, Monday is a day that is set aside for pre-Lent preaching workshops. Um, I think uh, Redeemer, one of our sister churches in the English District, had something going on all day. Uh, Pastor Grady and I went to the Lutheran Concerns Association uh, conference, which was just a day long, and we just caught the part of the afternoon because uh, we had, had stuff going on in the morning. Um, so that was it. So he came back uh, late Tuesday night after we had our circuit meeting with Bishop Hardy, and then I stayed Wednesday, Thursday, and then came back uh, Friday. So kind of a, a crazy week. And then he will be gone now on much-needed vacation. We don't want to see or hear from you uh, starting tomorrow, correct? Okay. And, uh, and remember the Ephesians 5 text, you know, love your wife as Christ loved the church, so just give her whatever she needs or wants this week on vacation. Um, okay, there you go. All right, so, um, so I'll be around this week to take care of things. So the Indiana March for Life is Tuesday, January 22nd. We've had a few people that have volunteered to drive. If you do want a carpool, uh, just contact us here at the church and let us know. Uh, the march itself takes place at 1.30 p.m., and that's from Georgia Street to Soldier and Sailor's Monument, I have no idea where that is, to Capitol Building. I'll figure it out. And 2 o'clock p.m. rally on the south steps of Indiana State House. I assume I can find all that on Google Maps. Okay, thank you. So, all right. Um, okay, follow-up. I asked you a question last week. We were talking about the Apostles' Creed, and it was actually a follow-up from the week before when we were talking about the difference between the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and somebody had asked, why don't we use the Apostles' Creed more often in the divine service? And the answer, first of all, was theological in the sense that the Nicene Creed specifically emphasizes uh, God in the flesh, so Jesus' divine and human nature at the same time. Um, and that the Holy Spirit proceeds from God the Father and God the Son. Um, and then we also talked about, practically speaking, the Apostles' Creed, which was originally a baptismal confession. Okay, it, it wasn't originally designed, per se, to be part of the divine service. It was during the rite of baptism. So this is our confession of faith, uh, very simple. Uh, Luther then included it in his catechism. Um, and then I asked the question last week, how often did Luther encourage us to pray the Apostles' Creed, not just say it? Remember, all these things we talk about praying, it's, it's a matter of a confession of faith. Um, and we're saying it not only to God in terms of what we believe to ourselves and to our neighbors, uh, those who may be around us. Uh, and so the question I asked you was, how often did Luther encourage us from his small catechism? And I think I also said how much did Luther encourage us in general? So there's actually two answers to this question. The first is, how many times in the small catechism do you hear that you should pray the Apostles' Creed on a daily basis? And I think I'm, my wife said like 16, and that's wrong. Oh, three. Three is incorrect. So raise your hand if you said three and you're wrong. No Snickers for you. <laughs> raise your hand if you said two. Two would be correct, okay? 
uh, in morning and evening. He specifically says that in the catechism, okay? Um, now, here's the other side of that. Do you want a Snickers bar? I have a whole bunch. I brought them. My wife went out treacherously in the snow and ice to buy these because I forgot them. Okay, we're here. Is that allowed? Oh, nice catch. <laughs> this is like the dog and pony show at Bible study, right? Uh, yeah, anybody else wants one, they're up here. Just come get I'm not going to throw them all the way back. Um, okay, uh, any other guesses? Any of you have a hymnal with you? Are you familiar with morning prayer, noon daily prayer, morning, noon, evening, and then compline? compline? So, so there's actually four times during the day, um, and, and Luther tried to practice this in his own household uh, when it was not being done there, uh, for example, in the city church. And so during the daily prayer, which is very brief, and, and we'll kind of use that format for chapel services with school and that sort of thing. So that would be an additional four on top of the two listed in the catechism. So four plus two is six. There you go. So that would be another answer. Okay. But the best answer is pray it as often as you can. Okay. And I've heard you tell you before, if you ever feel you're in the presence of evil, um, you, know, you get the hair standing up on the back of your neck. So three very simple things to do. Speak God's name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? And pay attention today, late service people, for God's name being emphasized to Moses in our Old Testament text. Okay? If you're at early service, take your propers home with you this week and look at that. So the fact that God gives us his name uh, is a very important thing. Um, and it means now that we have access to him. Um, so as I'm still continuing to meet all of you, you are giving me your name, you are inviting me to be able to come up to you and shake your hand and say, hi, Pastor Allman. I forgot his first name, but I know his last name is Allman, right? So, but I've got his name now, so there, there's, there's a connection now. And so when God gives us his name, he is opening up uh, lines of communication uh, between us and him, okay? And not only that, God's name is different from just, you know, each of us. His name is divine and holy, and so that's why we have all these texts that talk about his name. That's why, you know, at church, uh, you know, the, you've had the long-standing tradition of whenever God's name is said, um, whenever God's name is sung, uh, usually you will see people do something. At the very least, normally it's just a slight bow of the head. Sometimes you'll see a very deep bow. Um, uh, out where, where I have been serving in Nebraska, there's a lot of churches that don't have communion kneelers, like maybe we've been used to, um, and, uh, and it's a little different. A lot of different traditions when you kind of travel around, and so the way a lot of uh, people in that environment without a kneel, when they would come to communion, they were taught to bow like this. Were any of you taught to bow like this, where you just bend the knees? That's actually another form of bowing, okay? Now, somebody told me once where it came from, but I forgot, so I'm going to have to go look it up in one of my big fancy books and get back to you on that. And, and so if you ever see somebody doing like this, that's another, that's another way of bowing, okay? For most of us, simply a bow means like that, right? And you might have a fairly deep bow or little bow, but why do we do that? Why do we bow at God's name? Does it do anything when we bow, first of all? No. Let's, let's not become pietistic, right? We're not, we're not making God or this place of worship holier. We're not better than other Christians, you know, that don't bow, okay? And you could have somebody that's had back surgery and they're just like this the whole time, right? So <laughs> bowing is a matter of personal piety. Same thing as making the sign of the cross. Luther encourages us to do that, but not everybody does, and that's okay. Uh, so any of these things that we do are simply reaffirming and teaching you know, what God's name is all about and what's going on, okay? So you'll see different things like that. And you, kind of, you guys have kind of gotten used to that, and I feel comfortable talking about that because I've seen that stuff now since I've been with you as well, okay? Um, you'll see me make the sign of the cross. My wife doesn't. We kind of grew up in the same church. Does that make me holier than her? She's a lot holier than me, let me tell you. Um, okay, so different, you know, different matters of personal piety, and you should never be offended by that. 
So when I was in you know, junior high and I was you know, reading the catechism and the pastor's going through it and Luther says, you know, you can make the sign of the cross, you get up in the morning, you know, that sort of thing. And, and I wanted to do it, but nobody else in my class was doing it. And I felt so awkward doing it. And so, so what I would do is I would take my big toe and I would make the sign of the cross. <laughs> and as I got older, I stopped worrying what people thought, right? And, and so you have all those different things, okay? So it all comes down to God's name uh, being given to you, which takes us right into baptism, because we had two requests last week to talk a little bit um, about uh, giving a, a defense or an apologetic uh, for baptism. Um, and before I kind of get into the baptism question, which is kind of what I wanted to talk, tackle today, I wanted to share with you one book that I have on my shelf. And this would be a really good book if you're looking for a book to buy. It's called The Lutheran Difference. Okay, uh, it's called the Lutheran Difference: uh, An Explanation and Comparison of Christian Beliefs, and this was published by CPH in. It's got to be four or five years now. Let me look. Maybe not that long. Um, let's see. 2010. Oh, a little longer than I thought, but not too bad. It's fairly recent, actually. Okay, um, and they go through and they they give a list of. There uh, are various topics. So, um, so list of comparisons, absolution. What do different churches teach about absolution? Because I've had you know people that have have you know come to our, our Lutheran services before and said, oh, how are you able to forgive everybody their sins? Our pastor never did that growing up, right? That whole I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Angels, atonement, baptism, which we're going to cover today, uh, daily bread, Christ, confirmation, and that's kind of, you know, so, so what are the different uh, uh, comparisons between the denominations? And so when you think of the major denominations, we might say, you know, Lutheran, Roman Catholic, and Reformed, that's kind of the traditional threefold stool, but that three-legged stool really doesn't necessarily work very well anymore because you've got You've got Baptist, you've got Presbyterian, and not only within Baptist and Presbyterian, but there are very conservative Presbyterians, which would be PCA, Presbyterian Church of America, and then there would be very liberal Presbyterians, which we had in Hastings, Nebraska, Presbyterian Church, USA, okay? And big difference, and let me tell you, don't confuse those. <laughs> People will be very offended at you. Um, and so, same thing with Baptist. Um, you know, the United Methodist Church, uh, for the most part, still has remained, but they've got their own kind of divisions going on. Um, but then you kind of go down the Episcopal road, and that's become a real mess, uh, Anglican and some of the divisions that have gone on. Um, and then all the other churches of Christ, and it's hard to pin down some of the other non-denominational churches, right? So, so Trader's Point, anybody want to give me a denominational affiliation for that? No guesses? They were Baptist? Southern Baptist? Okay. I mean, I haven't spent a lot of time digging. I kind of went on the website and I was kind of looking around. Okay. So my wife is teaching at Central Christian Academy, and, and I, I pray for every day because on their website, one of their main points of doctrine is, is uh, you know, to be prepared for the, the uh, uh, Jesus' secret return. So they're millennialists, so they believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ, right? We are amillennialists. We believe that we are living in the thousand years now, so that the thousand years as listed in Scripture uh, is, is figurative, applies from the time of Christ's ascension into heaven until his return, right? So otherwise you end up with the Kirk Cameron Left Behind series, right? Where, you know, somebody's driving down the road and all of a sudden, boop, nobody driving, <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, and you, you hope the, your, your pilot flying your airplane that he's not a true believer or that he's got his life in order. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> you're going to be in real trouble. So anyway, um, so yeah, so this book kind of goes through all those different things. So if you're kind of looking for a resource of that, uh, this is a good one to do. So um, I thought we would talk a little bit about baptism today and that we would also maybe take some questions. You know, last week I shared with you a little bit about First Communion Confirmation, uh, just simply as information. Um, you know, I don't know if we will make any changes here in our practice, but some of our parents have asked about that, um, and we know that there's been changes in other churches uh, as well. 
So there's a lot of churches that are either doing confirmation at an earlier age or offering First Communion. You know, what does all of this mean? Um, confirmation is a little bit of a sacred cow because for, for really about 60 to 80 years, we've kind of had the same thing. Um, you know, but at the same time, we notice that what happens after eighth grade with the majority of our, of our youth. They fall into a deep black hole never to be seen from again, right? And at the same time, we know the challenges in this world are also increasing. And so when do our children face some of their largest temptations and peer pressure? When would you say? Middle school, yeah, that's what I would say. I would say probably starting sixth, seventh grade. And so if, 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 um, if that is the time where they're facing not only the biggest changes in their body and all the other stuff, but going on you know, in culture, if we believe the Lord's body and blood truly is forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation, wouldn't we want to perhaps provide that to them before or during they're going through one of the most difficult times of their life? Is that, is that a fair question to throw out there? Okay. Um, so... Uh, you know, I don't have the answers to all that. Back in, in the 1960s, Pastor Grady and I were talking about that a little this week. There was actually a study that was commissioned by the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod specifically on confirmation first communion. And it's a little yellow paperback. I was looking for it this morning in my office. I've got it somewhere on my shelf, but uh, it obviously didn't get put where it was on my old bookshelf, so I've got to find it. Um, and it was a really interesting study. It was a really big deal because they recognized back in the late 50s and 60s that these were things that needed to be addressed. And so they commissioned this really big study. It was kind of a big deal when it came out. And what they concluded was that kids, you know, when they have faith and understanding, need to take the Lord's body and blood at an earlier age. So the study, actually, the Missouri Synod study advocated First Communion. And then the suggestion for confirmation was to push it further back. Not at eighth grade, but push it further back into high school. Now, this is an actual Missouri Synod study with a lot of bigwig names on it and theologians and professors and all those things. Well, you know what happened in the late 60s, early 70s, right, in the Missouri Synod? And, and I don't know this for a fact. I meant to ask, a, like, a President Rast or a couple other Missouri Synod historians this week, and I, I didn't get a chance to, was... Uh, you know, we had, you know, Seminex came about, you had the walkout, and all, the others, all these other issues going on in the Missouri Synod. And my sense from my limited studies is that this study kind of got put on the shelf. <laughs> and, and, and nothing more has kind of been done with it. Except now there's been a resurgence in some of that. And unfortunately, it hasn't been done necessarily at a synodical level. level. It's just been a lot of pastors and congregations have kind of done their own thing in that regards. Um, which sometimes can be okay. Sometimes it'd be nice if we would to get together. I know in our circuit back in Hastings, before we started offering First Communion, we sat down with all the other churches in our circuit. And we said, this is what we're thinking about doing. And of course, some of the pastors had questions. Um, and we walked through and we studied that. And all of them gave us their thumbs up. But most of them said, we can't do that yet. <laughs> or we're not sure if we want to yet. Um, so there's only one other parish that, that uh, kind of started to change their, their practice as well. And that was probably one of the largest, or the largest uh, church in our parish, also a little more liberal than we were. Um, but, uh, okay. Any comments about that before I finally get to the baptism apologetic about confirmation first? I mean, anything you've been thinking about all week? Upset that I brought it up? Worried that I'm going to take it away from your kids or whatever? Okay, yeah. So, you know, Pastor, and Gra Pastor Grady and I, as we kind of chatted about that, I mean, you know, we're kind of thinking that we'd, we'd like to study a little bit more about the concept of First Communion, but then kind of what to do with confirmation is kind of where we kind of were butting our heads against the wall. And then we thought, you know, you know, maybe just leave that at eighth grade for now and down the road change it. I don't know. If you have answers to all this, come, come talk to us. Yeah, go right here. Please talk. One thing I have noticed is that um, seventh and eighth grade begins a very, very busy time in a lot of people's lives. Yeah. And some people go, well, we're busy in seventh, we're going to wait till eighth grade. Or eighth grade, we've got to wait. Ninth grade and tenth grade get no better in terms of having time and the ability to set time apart. 
And I mean, for that reason, you know, going forward uh, to, you know, fifth, sixth or sixth, seventh or might be easier uh, and people's lives may be less complex, you know, and just have more time. That's just me thinking, so. Yeah, and that's one of the we we have a few situations here at church. One of them is 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 our son, um, you know, with with the time that we have confirmation class with 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 sports and all that other stuff, and 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 it, it's really easy to say, well, you know, church has got to be the absolute number one priority, um, and 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 that's a true statement, it is, but of course you want to kind of balance things out as much as possible too, and the most important thing I think for us as pastors is that the children, the youth, and you are in the Lord's house every Lord's Day receiving his gifts because teaching also comes through the, 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 the exhortation of his holy word uh, in the sermon and the liturgy as well. Um, but we don't want to neglect the teaching because Jesus didn't just say baptize, he said baptize and teach. And so, you know, so if the culture has now changed with Opportunities for teaching, how do, how do we change and adjust to that? Or do we need to start at a younger level for some of them as well when they're not quite so busy? Um, so anyway, okay. You ready to talk about baptism? Two people asked kind of about baptism, I think, if I remember that from last week. And so let's just review real quick uh, before I kind of get into some of the more specific stuff and, and we're, gonna, we're gonna open our Bibles up a little bit as well. Um, so. What are the three reasons? There are three main reasons that uh, children should be baptized. Three main reasons from Scripture in your catechism. They're very basic. So anytime you're talking with, you know, one of your friends who believes in the age of accountability um, or believes that, uh, well, I'm going to let my child decide. That's probably the argument that I hear uh, more often than not is we want them to make the decision. We don't want to, you know, force something, you know, upon them. Um, at which point I kind of want to slap them and say, you know, train up the child in the way they should go. Uh, and so it's your job as parents to actually tell them what to do and how to do it. God has actually called you to do that. Um, you're not supposed to be your child's best friend. <laughs> you're supposed to be their parent. Uh, and that means law and gospel. That means discipline. So we hear that again from Scripture, that the Lord disciplines those he loves. And so that's important for t uh, parents to do. And as you get older, you find out, well, maybe I didn't discipline quite enough. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the, the Lord certainly is gracious and merciful. And, and then you, you do your best with uh, trying to work with your kids, with grandchildren and all that. But anyway, but Pastor Grady and I are here to come listen to you when you get a little upset and whiny. Come talk to us. But three reasons why children should be baptized. Number one, most importantly, children are able to do what? Have faith. Children are able to have faith. And you want a proof text for that one? What would you use? I'm going I'm to give you one, but what? Oh, John the Baptist in the womb. That's a great one. Yeah, that's a great liturgical connection. So here's uh, John the Baptist, a uh, baby in the womb, jumps for joy at the name of Jesus. Um, faith comes from hearing. Okay, and hearing is the word or the message of Christ. Um, it, it's also interesting if you want to get into some science facts, what is the first thing that develops with a child in the womb? Hearing. That's right. And it's, it's continued to go a little uh, lower or earlier uh, in some of the studies if you've followed all of that. Now, now they're, saying, they're saying around six weeks, I think was the last figure I heard, five and a half or six weeks. Uh, that's, that's pretty early. <laughs> Usually before you even, what ladies, realize you may be pregnant, okay? Is that, is that fair? Don't throw anything at me. Is that about, that's about right, isn't it? Pretty close? Okay. Uh, so that, so that's, that's pretty amazing. So, so faith comes from hearing, and little babies are able to hear. Um, and so the Holy Spirit works through uh, the gift of his word to create, uh, to create faith, okay? Uh, Jesus also says, do you remember the story of the millstone? That's a great passage. That's a great passage. Whoever causes one of these little ones, and the word little one there in Greek is padaya, and the word padaya there literally translates a child or a youth that can be bounced on the knee. Okay? Um, so those two kids of mine in the back sitting next to their mom, 
I can't bounce them on my knee anymore. <laughs> you know, so you're talking, you know, um, sometimes that'll get translated as toddler. So we're talking three, four, or under. I mean, I'm aware when they get a little bigger, but some, there's some pretty big five-year-olds that you probably wouldn't bounce on your knee anymore, right? So, so we're talking all the way down to an infant. So Jesus is saying, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, literally who has faith in me, causes them to sin, it would be better for that person to have what happen to them? A millstone hung around their neck, right? Sounds like a Clint Eastwood movie, and be drowned in the depths of the sea, right? So these little padayas, five and under, are able to have faith. Um, and so, so faith is there. Faith comes from hearing the word. That's the first place I try and, and establish with people, uh, that, that faith is God's gift. Go to a couple of simple passages with that, uh, and that they're able to believe. And that Jesus warns against causing these little ones who believe to, to sin, okay, or to not believe in him. Any comments on that before we go to the next point? Does that help? I know you were one, Mary. There was somebody else that asked about it too. So I'll try and not pick you up, point, point you out. Okay, the second reason that children should be baptized. So, so number one, they're able to have faith. Number two, and somebody said it earlier actually, they are sinful, okay? They actually are sinful. And that's a fun little, oh no, babies aren't sinful. They're the selfish, selfish most selfish creatures God ever invented. If you've had them before, do they pay any attention to your schedule? Do they? Not one bit. No. When they're hungry, they scream and wild and cry. They can't clean up after themselves. They have to have everything done for them. I mean, all they think about is, is, is themselves. That's kind of an aside. I don't know that I would go that direction with it, but, but it is kind of true. I mean, they're, they're, they don't really, they don't, they don't care and they can't, okay? Um, one passage that is always good to go to is, is who has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? A-L-L. Okay. So um, <laughs> that's everyone. And that's kind of a simple one that kind of makes some people have a little bit of a head scratcher because some people say, well, they're not really, you know, they, they really haven't sinned yet. Well, why the word all? that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the goal when you're dealing up apologetically with anyone, we believe that scripture is God's word. You're not gonna win any arguments in terms of rhetoric or logic, okay? You won't. And if you go into an argument to try and debate with someone based on that, it's just gonna take you down all sorts of endless circles of reasoning. The best thing you can do when you are dealing with someone who does not believe or share some of these things is let the Holy Spirit work through Scripture and simply speak Scripture and, and, and then trust it. I remember when I was not only a younger pastor but younger in high school, I thought I could, I could debate with anybody. And if I debated with them really well and I provided the best logic, they would get it. Except I ran up with people that simply just didn't believe it didn't matter how good the logic was or the rhetoric or the reasoning. They just simply didn't believe it. They rejected it. And that's the hardest thing to deal with. And so what we want to do is let God's word work, uh, you know, through Holy Scripture in that regards as well. Okay. Um, you know, uh, the other passages, you know, when God looked at his creation, this would be during the time of Noah, uh, he saw that the inclination or the intention of man's heart, and that's plural, um, was what? was only what all the time. Man's heart was evil all the time, okay? So those are, those are just a couple of very short, you know, Bible verses. Um, so, you know, when people talk about the goodness and purity of our heart, right? And so my wife was watching a Hallmark movie the other day and, and somebody was, you know, giving the advice, you know, just listen to your heart. And I'm like, no, don't listen to your heart. It's dirty and sinful. But, but, but now Christ Jesus, God Almighty, comes through baptism, through the power of his word, through his sacraments, and he takes up residence in your dirty, sinful heart. And that which is dirty and sinful, he does what? Though your sins are as scarlet, he makes it as white as snow. Okay? But yet you remain with a dirty, sinful heart while you live here in this life. 
right? And that's the simul, that's the simultaneously saint and sinner at a hard time at the same time, and that would be a whole other apologetic thing. Roman Catholics don't believe in simul justus et peccator, okay? A, a, tr a true Reformed, <laughs> good Baptist, they don't believe in simul justus et peccator. They don't believe you're simultaneously saint and sinner. And so it's, it's a constant having to, you know, uh, you know, figure out which one you are and where you're at and whether you're really saved, which brings nothing but doubt and worry and fear, okay? So uh, babies are able to believe. Uh, babies are sinful. Um, and number three, anybody want to take a poke at the third one? It's right out of the catechism. What? Didn't hear you, sorry. How so? What part of God's command are they included in? Very good, yes, all nations, right? Uh, so, 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 goyim, they're included in all nations. Does it say anywhere specifically in the Bible to baptize babies? Nope, doesn't say it anywhere. That's what some people say. Oh, you crazy baby baptizers, you, you know, liturgical Lutherans and Roman Catholics and, and some of you Methodists and conservative Presbyterians. It doesn't say anywhere in Scripture to do that, okay? And I always say, well, <laughs> what about older people? Where does it say specifically that, that a certain age is supposed to be baptized? What about the mentally, mentally challenged? What about the disabled? Oh, yeah, the whole we, we have to do exactly what Jesus did. Yep. And then I would say if it's, if it's a matter of, of, of Jesus as an example, then you've got a lot of work to do. How many blind people have you healed? I'm, I'm being kind of funny, I know, a little facetious that way. But if you're going to do everything that Jesus did, you need, to do, you need to do everything he did, not just pick out the ones you think you can do, right? You, you, you better do it all. So, you know, so Jesus as an example breaks down pretty quickly, uh, you know, when you start, you know, when it, so in the epiphany story, when Jesus uh, leaves the temple um, and... Uh, uh, well, he's teaching in the temple, and you know, Mary and Joseph come, and you know, and, and Mary's like, "We've been looking for you everywhere." And Jesus is like, "Why weren't you looking for me in my father's house? It's where I'm supposed to be, right?" So Jesus, in some ways, kind of points out Mary and Joseph's uh, sin and misunderstanding. But then we have the text after that that Jesus went home with them and was obedient to them, and literally, it means that he completely did what he was supposed to do as a child. Right? Have you done that with your mom and dad? Oh, you're screwed, buddy. Because <laughs> you can't go back and do that over. <laughs> right? You know, so, so when you talk about Jesus as an example, that, that starts to break down pretty quick. Um, and, and we're going to earn our righteousness down this way. Okay? So, so very simply, the three ways that I would go with baptism, and, and I'm going to open up the, uh, some of this big fancy book that I've got, um, but that's where I would go. Babies are able to have faith. Uh, babies sin and are sinful. And babies are included in the command, you know, to baptize all nations. They're included in that. And not only that, but we have several accounts of whole households uh, being baptized. And, and from our study, uh, you know, Josephus, Tacitus, and others, when you talk about households, uh, we know that that's, that's all people. So that would include old and young alike. Specifically, does it say anywhere that babies were baptized? Nope, it doesn't. But I would say it doesn't need to. Um, because nor does God pick out any other specific age of people, okay? Um, now, some of the early church didn't help with this, um, and I don't want to get too much into that, but there was a long-standing time in the early church where people would wait, um, and this is kind of a, an offshoot of asceticism, um, where they would wait until they were close to Jesus' age to get baptized. So, um, so if we can get baptized as close to the age of Jesus, um, you know, then, then that's going to be the best. And, that'll, and, and the other reason they would say for that is we'll have 30 years worth of sins that will be taken care of. And so if the average life expectancy was 40 or 45, hey, I've got the majority covered, so I'm good. <laughs> 
But, but seriously, we read some of the early church fathers, and uh, we'll have to get your brother, Dr. Busher, down here to talk about that, uh, because uh, I remember a class that, that he taught briefly on that subject, um, and, and very interesting in that regard. So you see some different things throughout church history of how people handled, you know, baptism. Obviously, in the early church, the majority of, of, the, of the Christians that came in were converts from Judaism. And baptism now uh, was to replace what? Circumcision. So the majority of these adults had already been circumcised. What did they now need to receive? Baptism. Okay. So, so when you start to look just kind of at the, the, the early beginnings uh, of the church and why we have so many accounts of adults getting baptized, you know, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense that way. No. Yep. Yeah. That's that's a that's a, a very. And you said kid. You had to go and make it really difficult, didn't you? Um, well, I mean, let's 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 back up a little bit. You you know what? Right. I have to take my answer back because our good friends and my prior associate pastor, Pastor Siebert, they had a stillborn daughter. Um, and the daughter did not, they didn't have a chance to baptize the daughter. Um, did I do the funeral? Absolutely. What did I know? Well, that child had been hearing the word of God ad nauseum. And you think I preached long? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Um, I mean, they'd been praying with that child uh, in the womb. It's able to hear and believe. We, we've had a few miscarriages, and I believe there'll be children in heaven that we haven't met yet that we'll get to see, uh, because I believe just that, that the power and efficacy is in the word of God, okay? And that his word has that ability to do that, okay? Uh, so for that little, for that stillborn girl, we had a very, you're going to get me all choked up here, because that was a really tough funeral. Um, we had a very small casket, and uh, we did not use the funeral pole. We didn't use the funeral pole. I don't think you were able to come down for the funeral, or you were there. We didn't use the funeral pole because, you know, she hadn't been baptized in that sense, but I don't think they had a small funeral pole anyway. Some congregations will have a small pole to be placed over an urn, and it's kind of a, a mini-me version of the big pole. Um, and... Uh, so they had the normal big pole that would go over the casket. Um, I don't know. I'd have to think about whether a, you know, you'd use a pole for... I mean, the pole symbolizes the baptism. It's supposed to remind of that. Um, and um, So that would be the only time that I've, I've, I've done a funeral for someone that hasn't been, hasn't been baptized. I've had requests from you know, family members before. Oh, my, my you know, Uncle Frank never wanted to come to church. Um, or maybe even while well, Uncle Frank was alive, I go to visit him and he says, I don't want to talk to you, preacher. I don't believe in God. Am I going to do a funeral for Uncle Frank? Should I? Should I, should I give that Christian witness and, and testimony to that? Now, this, this gets to be kind of a, a challenging question um, when you talk about you know, pastoral care and we still want to provide pastoral care for the family. Yes, we want them to know who Jesus is and hear about that, uh, but we in no way, shape, or form want to commend um, <laughs> you know, the non-faith of the deceased, right? You know, so you've got that cryptic passage in Scripture, let the dead bury their own dead. And there's a lot of debate in our pastoral circles exactly what that means, how far does that extend. Normally, if it's someone who was a Christian, um, was baptized, you know, um, you know I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do the funeral, and they're, they're not members, then I would do something at the funeral home. Um, you know, so we, we tend to call it more of a memorial service. It's, it's really still a funeral service, but we just like to use different terms to make ourselves feel better sometimes. But uh, thanks for bringing up a very morbid topic, Mrs. McKay. No, that's all right. That was a good one. Yeah, we don't we don't pray for the dead either. Yeah, so that would be a difference. Yeah, uh, we don't we don't pray for the dead. Um, we don't appeal to them uh, to do that. Yeah, yeah, yep. So, 
You know I'm going to be with you the rest of the afternoon, right? Okay. <laughs> Yes. You talking about Lutheran churches or other churches? <laughs> so, can I can I answer that question and and comment on something else first? So, one of my pet peeves is when I'll have other Lutheran pastors or churches will will gladly commune somebody else, right? So you have other people that are visiting, you know, the Lutheran church, and there's the communion statement. You know, if you believe these things, then come on up and take the Lord's body and blood. Um, and, uh, and for a lot of people, they haven't been baptized. So should someone who hasn't been baptized ever commune anyway? So, you know, so that's just a whole open communion question. So when you talk about, you know, why we practice closed communion, um, you know, that would be another one. So now back to your question, which I didn't really address at all. Ask it again. Um, I would say most, actually. I don't know how well they, they all police that. You know, so take example at uh, your sister and her husband's church that, that we went to that one time and they just passed wafers and grape juice down the aisle. And it was just, if you wanted it, take it. And there were even kids that were taking it. I mean, just whoever, you know? Or, you know, crazy Uncle Bob was probably just hungry. I don't know. Um, you know, so, so you, have, you have situations like that that are very common, and I'm sure there's churches around our area here that do that. Um, but uh, for the most part, you know, baptism... Um, is still connected with the Lord's Supper in some way, shape, or form. So even some of, um, you know, I mentioned I had a good friend down in Little Rock, Arkansas, senior pastor of a big Southern Baptist church. And, uh, you know, they go through baptism when the, the, the child or the youth is ready to make their commitment, uh, is ready to, you know, make a decision for Christ. Um, and then normally they would, you know, start communing after that. That's how they practice it at their church. Um, I haven't studied that specifically other churches. I'm going to go to Pastor Ullman and Grady and see if they have anything to add on that one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They define fellowship differently than we do. So when Paul talks about the breaking of bread uh, in the fellowship, and if you have something against your brother, first leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled. Um, you know, they, they really kind of ignore the, the koinonia side of it in terms of what a confession of faith really is, okay? So for some, number one, it's just between you and God, and nobody else can, you know, has anything to say on that. For others, it's just completely a love fest, and it's, there's nothing really any sacred going on. So you fall off on either side of the mountain. <laughs> we kind of hold both and, right? There's the vertical relationship going on with God, which means you need to know and believe. You know, you don't want it to be glass in your belly. Um, and at the same time, that you also should have fellowship that is similar beliefs with those that you're taking it at, okay? So we would simply say the best, historically, this is what the Missouri Synod has said. They don't necessarily say it now, but the best place to take communion is where? At your church, from your pastor or pastors, period. Walther talks about that, okay? As a matter of fact, uh, you know, Walther, when they were raising money for the new seminary, he and Winnikin tra traveled over to Germany. And so they're visiting all these Lutheran churches. And it was really fascinating because most of the churches they went to, they would, they would observe the service, they'd listen to the sermon, and then they would decide after that whether they were going to go up to the rail to commune. And most of the time, they didn't go up for communion. And sometimes they ended up having long discussions with the pastor, pastors into the odd hours of the night because they said, we don't want to be, you know, we don't even, we don't want your money if it's tainted by a bad confession. That was really interesting, right? Totally opposite of a fundraiser, right? <laughs> he should have communed with everybody if he really wanted to build his seminary. Some would take that, take that route. Um, and uh, uh, that was actually, uh, 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 President Harrison translated a number of those letters that he wrote. At Home in the House of Our Fathers was the name of that book that came out about 12, 15 years ago. Okay. There was another question or comment. Yeah, Larry. I think that 
Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. And as I mentioned last week, we even have the, that error that is still propagated in, in our Missouri Synod called receptionism, that it's really not the body and blood of Jesus until what? Until you believe it is. As opposed to the historic stance and our belief here at Advent that, you know, when God says something, <laughs> it's what it is. So when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, when the pastor speaks those words, that bread and wine becomes what? Body and blood of Jesus. And we treat it with reverence. And we eat and drink it, which is what it's for, right? And if we need more bread and wine, we get more bread and wine. If we have a little extra left over, we just eat and drink it. Really simple. Okay, any other questions? Did I miss one over here? Good. Okay, so this Lutheran difference, just on, on baptism, um, I just kind of wanted to look at some of the comparisons. And let me read their heirs of the promise, which is just kind of three short paragraphs. So through his covenant of circumcision with Abraham, and that's from Genesis 17, 1 to 13, so you can refresh your memory on that, God promised that he would be Abraham's God and the God of his descendants. He also said he would give Abraham the promised land. This is an everlasting covenant. So that covenant still apply today? Oh yeah, it does. Now, God gives New Testament believers a substitute for circumcision, which is what? Baptism. Paul tells us that through baptism, we put on Christ. That's from Galatians 3.27. Paul also says that we are the descendants of Abraham through faith in Christ, verse 29. So all members of God's family are equally valued. God sent his son Jesus to die for people of all races, nationalities, and status. One of Jesus' most familiar parables regarding our relationship with God is the parable of the prodigal son from Luke 15. The father demonstrates an accepting and loving attitude toward his sons, no matter what they do or say to him. His sacrificial love reflects God's love for us. The father gives everything to his sons, even if they turn on him or are disrespectful. God's love is like this. He comes to sinful humans who ignore, hate, or disrespect him, yet he loves them enough to sacrifice his own son. Okay? And what I'm going to do with the rest of the time is, on this concept of heirs of the promise and baptism, this book then goes into Eastern Orthodox, Lutheran, Reformed, Anabaptist, Roman Catholic, Baptist, Wesleyan, Liberal. I'm not sure what liberal means anymore, um, but we'll see what they have to say on that. Okay. So they kind of break down you know, all these different ones with some Bible passages. And the last thing I wanted to say is when you find yourself talking with someone about this, and you're trying to think, what am I going to say to them, or what Bible passages? The first thing that I would suggest doing is, is simply get to know them better. Get to know where they're coming from. Sometimes, you know, as I've gotten older as a pastor, I've learned to not be quite as quick to speak, <laughs> and, and to listen a little bit more, to understand what their background is. So say they're asking me these questions, you know, and I start going off on all this other stuff and only later come to find out that they've actually been catechized as Lutheran. They've probably heard some of those things before. Maybe they're Roman Catholic, um, you know, or, or whatever. So then you can kind of circle your wagons and try to, you know, enter their definition of terms, um, which, for example, a Roman Catholic, they define grace completely differently. So we had a Roman Catholic theologian that came to Symposia this week. He was from St. Louis University, and uh, he basically uh, gave a paper, and in the paper, three different times, he said, oh, we're so close. And he said, back in 99, when we were doing the joint declaration of justification, we finally realized we were talking to the wrong Lutherans. We should have been talking to you guys. And I'm thinking to myself, we chose not to be at that conference? <laughs> because we already knew what you were saying and we disagreed with you. You're right that maybe you should have been talking to us, but you know, he goes on to say that, that, that you know, they hold to the same justification of, 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 uh, you know, of, of, of grace you know, by faith. And I'm like, no, we don't. Because they define grace differently. Two completely different definitions of grace. But yet when you, when you say the term justification of grace by faith, they say, yay, and you say it to a Lutheran, and a Lutheran says, yay, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, baby, yeah. 
they say the same thing, but they define grace differently. So you have to know the background would be my point of the terms uh, of where people are coming from with that. I mean, words mean things. And so to establish that in your conversations with friends or coworkers, uh, or even just as you might hear something on the radio or you go to a lecture, and that's what made this week so tiring as we're listening to these lectures, you know, and, and you're, you're you know, sitting there listening to it. And for the most part, you can trust, you know, our kind of our Lutheran guys. We have the same vocabulary. But you have other guys from different backgrounds, and then I got I to gotta get on my little smart device, you know, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, where they went to school and who their professor was and what papers they've written, you know, and then I'm trying to listen at the same time, and is that right or is that wrong? And then you write notes, and you're like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back and check on that later, and then you get home and, you know, you find the notes 11 years later when you make a move to a different church that you never looked at. <laughs> Let's move on briefly. So Eastern Orthodox comparisons. Question, why are children baptized? For the faith of their parents and sponsors who are also bound to teach them the faith so soon as they are of sufficient age to learn. And that's from the longer catechism of the Eastern Church. So for an Eastern Orthodox, why baptize a child? For the faith of the parents and sponsors. So they're connected to what? The family. Okay, you got that? So that was, that was right of their catechism. And it's kind of interesting when you kind of read through this. Okay, I'm going to skip the Lutheran one because I'm going to assume you guys know that one, right? Reformed. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the partly baptized in the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace of his ingrafting into Christ. That's from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And that gets kind of confusing when you talk about reform because there's different types of reform. There's, this would be a very conservative reform that a few of you are shaking your head because you might have grown up with it, okay? Um, but no mention of forgiveness of sins, right? Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a, um, a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, okay? Anabaptist, and this is from the uh, Door Direct Confession, Article 7. Concerning baptism, we confess that penitent believers who through faith, regeneration, and the renewing of the Holy Ghost are made one with God and are written in heaven, must upon such scriptural confession of faith and renewing of life be baptized with water in the most worthy name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Okay, um, so Anabaptist, uh, which means they were against paedo-baptism, um, advocating then a believer's baptism. So you need to be able to speak your faith, uh, you need to be able to confess that faith, um, and, and they go on in, in different uh, confessions to talk about immersion as well as opposed to sprinkling, okay? Uh, Roman Catholic. For in those who are born again, there is nothing that God hates because there is no condemnation to those who are truly buried together with Christ by baptism and to death, who walk not according to the flesh, but putting off the old man and putting on the new who is created according to God are made innocent, immaculate, pure, harmless, and beloved of God, Heirs indeed of God, but joint heirs with Christ. And that's from uh, uh, Council of Trent, actually, uh, session five. Hear anything you like? Anything you didn't like? What was the emphasis for the Roman Catholic one? What? That's okay. That's, not, that's all right. You're good. good. Keep doing your job, Mom. You're doing good. Okay. So, who walk not according to the flesh. So, for a Roman Catholic, I had an old priest. I played golf with him in St. Louis when I was at the seminary. He was a great guy. He actually worked at the Vatican for like seven or eight years. He kept in touch with his childhood sweetheart from St. Louis. And when she never married, he basically forsook his ordination vows, came back to St. Louis, married her, and, yeah, real interesting guy. Still active in the Catholic Church, uh, they uh, started one of these community gardens kind of uh, in uh, uh, downtown, just south of the East End. And anyway, um, but, but he explained to me once, he goes, oh, Marcus, he loved playing. He was, like, he was like 74 years old at the time, and he would shoot his age, which is pretty good, right? And I'm shooting like 85. I'm just glad to be in the 80s at that point, you know, and he's shooting in the mid-70s. He's a little short little guy. He said, we Catholics, you know, we believe that we've got this, this kind of, kind of this coat of armor. 
And he goes, when, when we're forgiven and walking in our baptism, that armor, nothing can touch that armor. But every time we sin, we take that armor off. And so now we've got to go get that armor renewed, and we have to do good works to put it back on. And sometimes we've got to pound it out and do all that. But when we're wearing that armor, we can't do anything wrong. And he said, now our priests, they wear the armor all the time. They never take it off. Okay, now this was back in 2000, 2001. Um, yeah, so you can kind of see some of the errors that have cropped up over the years with a priest can't sin, right? Which led to the whole ignoring all sorts of issues. But part of that infallibility even of the bat. So baptism for them, they, they look at a little differently than we do. Still, you know, these are all Trinitarian baptisms. Uh, Baptist, we believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And all of them have actually said that. So all using Trinitarian names. So we would say they're all valid baptisms then, correct? So if I have anybody come to me from any of these denominations, do I baptize them again? No. Now, if they don't know if they were baptized, if we can't find any, you know, family that can attest it, no baptismal certificate, then what will we do as pastors? <laughs> Let's baptize you. If you're not sure and you have no evidence of it, God wants you to be sure. So I've had a few people that I've done that with. Okay. Um, we believe Christian baptism is immersion, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith. Uh, in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to new life, okay? So that is about showing forth, you know, God's grace. So not receiving anything, but now showing forth. And two more, and then we're done. Westlane, baptism is not only a sign of profession and mark of difference, whereby Christians are distinguished from others that are not baptized, but is also a sign of regeneration or the new birth. The baptism of young children is to be retained in the church, and that's the Methodist Articles of Religion, Article 17. And so that's why you'll find uh, Methodists and Presbyterians will still baptize babies, but normally, if you're unsure about that, they'll also wait. <laughs> so they kind of do both. Religion is concerned, this is liberal, to affirm the possibility of a vital spiritual relationship in which the soul of man feels it as a rightful home in the universe. If we are to be true to the demands of actual religious experience, we should give our primary attention to the identification of what is of value for our faith rather than the attempt to vindicate non-natural divine origins. We feel that religions, religious faith is better if we deny that baptism supernaturally affects a change of character. Ah, you understanding that? That's Gerald Bernie Smith Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion, University of Chicago Press. Okay. So long story short, the point to remember with baptism, in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, Galatians 3, 26 to 27. Okay? So you're welcome to borrow that book if you want. It goes into more detail on some other topics, some of which will probably put you to sleep, and other ones you're like, wow, that's really good. Okay. Comments or questions? Good, good. Okay, so any other suggestions of what you want to study next here in Bible class? Because I don't want to continue just doing topical like this each week. I'd really like to get in and take up a topic or a book of the Bible as we move forward. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Leviticus. My wife says we're not doing a Bible study on Leviticus just yet. <laughs> it was a really good book. <laughs> See, Mary liked it. <laughs> Ouch. Husbands, love your wives. We're good. We get along great. All right, any other suggestions of what you want to study? The book of Job. Ooh, it's so dark. It is good, though. A lot of gospel there. Yeah? Okay, 
Okay. Okay. I'm going to give you some options next Sunday. Okay. I, I picked up a few books when I was up in Fort Wayne. Um, and so there's a couple other things that are kind of out there. I thought the other thing we could do is kind of take one of our kind of book of the months and, and go through and kind of study that as well. And I can get a Kindle version, throw it up on the, on the screen on the wall. And then those of you that want to buy it could do that too. So we'll, I'll give you some options next week. Okay. Okay. Thank you. You're not a lot of help. Stand up. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us again to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Peace be with you. Amen.